You can tell I'm not very musically adept. But I can sure appreciate good music when I hear it. And this morning we heard it, did we not? This was great. Young ones are dismissed. They're headed to a Bible message suited just for them. Uh, something that they can apply and that will help them greatly in their own spiritual walk. Let me just say thank you again to each one of you that is here. It's very nice to see uh, many of you that we haven't seen for one reason or other, travels or sickness or something else. Mrs. Fugate, it's nice to have you here. Uh, her daughter Leah and your other daughters are here as well. And it's nice to see you guys. They've come up from Madeline's uh, open house. Uh, her husband is a pastor as well, so he's very busy this morning. Uh, and uh, I'm assuming president of the Commonwealth Bible House. I was assuming, so he's got, he's got his work cut out for him. Uh, we'll pray for him as we pray for our own services here this morning. I do hope and pray you came prepared to hear the word. I hope so. I hope so. Yesterday I didn't get to send out a prep video. Uh, get you thinking about the message. You knew what was coming up, and I hope you took some time to think about it. And one of the things I really want to do battle with is this concept of this idea that the Sermon on the Mount is kind of a, a collection of various wise sayings by Jesus. He is making a distinct argument. He is arguing for a very important point. What Pastor Dan was referring to is the fact that now next week Jesus is going to say three times, he's going to say, therefore take no thought. Based on what we're going to study this morning, what we're going to look at this morning. So make sure that you're ready for that. Uh, let's go ahead, we're going to read verse 16, but before I get started there, sorry, verse 19. Well, before I get started there, deacons, I do need a few of you to hear some testimonies this morning. We have a number of new members that have been, or prospective new members, they want to be new members, uh, and uh, they are just uh, waiting for somebody to hear their testimony. We're excited about that. We have a new bunch that completed the class, and we're looking forward to having more. Doing it again, let me know, let me know, we'll, we'll start all over again. Now, beginning there, verse 19, lay not up for yourselves treasures upon the earth. Look at the end of verse 24, ye cannot serve God and mammon. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. Let's go ahead and pray, shall we? Father God, we enter into your presence Mindful this morning of our own frailty, of our own ineptitude, as, as Bill so eloquently pointed out, Father, we are a people most deficient. Our sin, our depravity, our selfishness, our bent to pride is our chief obstacle in receiving your fullest blessing here this morning. I know there is one being in this universe, though we could say all of his minions as well, who would love nothing more than for this to be an intellectual, educational exercise. He's going to do all he can in his power to prevent hearts from hearing the word, and if they hear it, he wants them to be confused by it. Most of all, he wants them to remain complacent in it. Father, 
Father God, this message this morning is a tough one. In it, Jesus lays claim to the fact that our chief affection is supposed to be you and nothing else. We have many loves. We love far too many things. And Father, quite often that means we love you far too much. Now bless our study, bless our searching, bless our praying, bless our thinking, certainly. But Father, most of all, equip us and grant us courage to obey. Father, this morning we do pray for a host of other groups that are doing much the same. Lord, we thank you this morning already, Pastor Brodsky. We're glad that he is feeling better. Lord, I was recently reminded of uh, uh, Pastor Weiss and some of the adjustments down there ministering him. Lord, I think of uh, the, the future coming pastor at Calvary. Father, we very much look forward to him being here as well. Bless him in our fair city. Father, as we co-labor, as we join the labor together to win the lost of beautiful Rochester. This morning, Father, we do lift up Pastor Fugate as well. He has a full plate this morning, many different moving parts. And Father, I pray that you minister to him, especially as I know that when my family is gone, there's a great big void. Things feel so different when my family is not here with me. And so, Father, I just pray that you minister to him during this time. And Father, let him rejoice. Let him rejoice because of the effort and the time spent in leading your people. Father, now we pray that you bless in our study, Father, just ensure that this morning our hearts and minds are captivated by you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Maybe you know that our first ministry was very inner city. It was unlike any world I had ever been in. And I've mentioned probably a few times we had a number of police officers uh, in the church. We actually had one couple. I'm pretty sure, I, if I'm not mistaken, it's been so long now. Uh, they actually met in Vice Squad, and so she would dress up like a certain woman of ill repute. She would go out on the street when men would come and meet her. She'd say, hey, meet me around the corner. Well, the police were waiting around the corner. Uh, we had one guy who was the North Regional of New Jersey. He was the state gang director, and we had him come into the school to talk to the parents regarding gangs and uh, the building, our building would get tagged and such. We had many different gangs in Patterson. We had the mafia, I mean the mafia supposedly owned all 21st Ave. I mean it was just, you were kind of used to the gang life, uh, the gang culture around you. And one of the things that he, that he said when he was talking to parents was the need for complete and total allegiance within those gangs. And I've explained that to you. He even said, he talked to uh, the parents, the fact that 30-year-old males were still being recruited into some of these games, and, and the kids were so used to it that they, they would teach us on staff how to do game signs. This is the latest game sign. They were good Christian kids. They weren't gangsters, but they were just so used to this culture, and in that culture, there was this demand for complete and total allegiance. You were not to have loyalty to anything or anyone else except perhaps that leader, the person who was leading that gang, and they would make you prove it some way, and every gang was a little bit different, but it was impressive to me 
and how they just, in the ways that they would go, the lengths that they would go to, to demand this complete oil. And Officer Price, he was telling parents, he says, you got to watch colors. If your child is wearing a specific color all the time, he said, it could be a hat, it could be a bandana, it could be a sash or something hanging out of his pocket. He said, we even had one guy we had to watch because he had a plastic fork that he would keep in his back pocket, and it was always one color. Apparently, he was the caterer for gang events. Uh, he made sure he was ready to eat. I don't know. But it was impressive the extent to which these guys would go to try to give their allegiance to this one solitary cause. Even the gangsters understood, they knew, that when a person has multiple allegiances, it's hard for them to give time and energy and effort to the mission of the cause. And Jesus is giving us that same kind of com uh, that same kind of concept here in Matthew chapter six, beginning in verse nineteen. Now remember, we just went through these different uh, uh, expressions of devotion. Remember that we saw the giving, the charity, giving to those who are in need. Uh, we saw praying, we saw fasting, uh, and Jesus is explaining that all of those things were meant for pleasing one. He said, don't worry about those people that are watching you, don't worry about that audience, don't worry about that appearance that you are trying to give. If it is a devotional expression meant for God, then only God's opinion matters. Only God's opinion matters. And now he's building on the same concept. He's actually starting to unfold it a little bit farther. And then, like I said, in, in next week, when we come back to verse 25, he's going to say three times. When he says, take no thought for yourself, what you should eat, what you should drink, what you should wear. Okay, he came to that conclusion based on what we're talking about this morning. He's trying to prove his point. That we give, we pray, we fast for the notice for the approval of God alone, and certainly not for ourselves to achieve some kind of self-righteousness. That's the kind of religion that the Pharisees were peddling. That's the kind of religion that they were trying to recruit for. And you and I, we have to remember that when we practice righteousness, our devotions belong to God and God alone. The life of a disciple is a question of being mastered by God. The life of a disciple is a question of being mastered by God. Again, I mean, just anybody who gets you know soft, warm, fuzzy feelings about the Sermon on the Mount is not reading it right. This is another whack across the fingers. This is hard. This is tough. When we come and we want to practice our religion, we want to do it for ourselves. We want to be benefited by it. We want something to come of it, something good, some kind of admiration. But he's saying here that this heavenly kingdom, within this heavenly kingdom, there is first an idyllic people. We talked about that as so we went through the Beatitudes. We talked about there is an idyllic principle that governs in this kingdom, an idyllic principle. And under that principle... You see Jesus, he's explaining with this new righteousness. He's talking about things such as loyalty. If I had to sum up chapter 6 in one word, it would be loyalty. It would be loyalty. The fact that you see this special loyalty to God's word, you see it to 
uh, in their devotions as well. You can see it in that charity, in the prayer life, uh, in, in the uh, fasting life. And if you missed that fasting, some folks had asked about the fasting notes. They're on the lower table, the little table at the back. The longer notes are back there in the message, in the sermon, in the sorry bulletin last week. Those were the short notes. So if you want to know more about that, grab a hold of those when you can. And the malpractice that the Jews were guilty of here is the fact that they were fasting with sad and disfigured faces. They were motivated by appearances instead of God. They were not so interested in God's opinion as they were those who were looking at them saying, My goodness, what a tremendous saint. What a tremendous man or woman of God. And Jesus said, Listen, you shouldn't look any different than the rest of the week long, any other public market day that you would go out. They would, they would plan their fasting for the days when they would be most, most visible. Now this morning, notice here that the kingdom citizens exhibit a special loyalty to God's values. A special loyalty to God's values. And you're going to see these three immutable principles of loyalty to God. You can see it there in your text, verse 19. Lay not up for yourself treasures upon the earth. I like this. The fact that he summarizes each one of them. Verse 21. He summarizes there for where your treasure is. There will your heart be also. Correct? There will your heart be also. The light of the body is the eye. That's the hard one. That's the one that most pastors kind of. Oh what do we do? Boy that one took me a lot longer than any of the other points. I'm trying to figure out. Because I'll be honest with you. At the beginning of the week I was like huh? I guess, I can try and guess, but I, I'm not so interested in guesswork in preaching, are you? I kind of like to know what it says, and only what it says, and he sums up again at the end of verse 23, if therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? And then verse 24, no man can serve two masters, and he says it differently at the end of verse 24, you cannot serve God and mammon. Now notice, first of all, go back to verse 19. First of all, in verse 19, we can't help but notice that the loyalty of these kingdom citizens means they are not mastered by earthly materials. They are not mastered by earthly materials. This is a warning. <coughs> Lay not up. Do not gather. Do not heap. Do not store up. Do not accumulate riches. This is a warning that earthly treasure works contrary to the kingdom when it motivates us selfishly. You have to understand to the ancient Jews of the Pharisees and their way of thinking that, right, that riches came with righteousness. That if you were wealthy, by hook or by crook, that if you were wealthy, it was a, it was a signature of God upon your life and His blessing upon you that you were somebody who was highly favored by those on high. Jesus completely obliterates it. It's like a stick of dynamite in a bowl of jello. He blows it up. He destroys it. He takes it. He eliminates it when he says here that the people of God, the true people of God, not the people like the Pharisees were, that the true people of God know that they are not to be mastered by earthly materials. Now, let me just say here a little bit of caveat. I'll say it, uh, I've said it many times before, but it's good to say it again. Wealth is not wrong. 
There are some people God blesses with wealth. Abraham, Job. Okay, there are many different people, but living governed by wealth, that is wrong. Living governed by wealth, that is wrong. Remember, is it money that is the root of all evil? It's the love of money that is the root of all evil. Now there are three enemies that fight that resist this earthly material. Number one is this tiny moth. This tiny, tiny moth. This moth is a profane. He's very hungry. Just that. He can bounce me forward there a little bit. It's by its tiny size, this little moth, and that's actually what it means. That's the word there, moth. Uh, he is, you know, obviously he loves to eat your clothes. He loves to eat your materials. Back then, people would have some clothes uh, that were uh, uh, saved up, that were put together. Maybe they would have a little bit extra. If you were wealthy, they would have tapestries on the wall. They would have tents uh, that were made out of cloth and material. And uh, the moths had plenty of food, and so they would go around and put little holes and everything. Maybe you've seen it. You pulled some stuff out of your garage attic, out of a, out of a basket or some kind, and there's all these little holes. Now, you used to throw mothballs in there to protect your riches, your wealth, but now they're saying mothballs are toxic, and they're bad for the environment, bad for you, bad for everybody and everything. I don't know. But enemy number one is this little creature called the moth, and he loves to eat your treasures. Now, that word for treasures, that's a very interesting word. Uh, it's probably one that sounds a little familiar to you, even in the Greek. Thesaurus. Thesaurus. Does that sound familiar to you? Maybe you have a book on your shelf at home. It is a treasury, a collection of words. And that's the same word here. You say this is a collection this is a collection of treasures. This is a collection of precious things that you store on earth that you keep them. And this moth, he loves to go in there and also does rust. Also is rust. Sorry, number two there. Now rust reminds us of the frailty of the materials that people use to build strength. You have to understand, now to us, iron isn't a big deal. Uh, we live in a world full of plastics. We live in a world full of farmed wood. Uh, different materials are being used now. But back in the ancient times, if you wanted something strong, you built it out of iron. If you wanted it really strong, you went through the agony and the process of producing steel. Steel has been around a long time, although Mr. Bessemer perfected its uh, mass the mass production of steel, but back then, that to them, you kept pulling that steel, you kept putting it together, you kept blowing air in on top of it and strengthened it, and they would create uh, iron chariots and swords, swords out of steel. And, but I'll tell you what, all of that iron work, all of that metal work, had one serious flaw. Have you ever watched those? Um, uh, those shows where they're digging up old sites, archaeological sites of different people. Every once in a while they'll find some kind of piece of iron. What's it covered with? Rust. I love especially World War II. I would love it. would be so much fun. I don't have time or energy, though, uh, to have a metal detector and somebody set me loose in Europe after World War II. I mean, the stuff people are finding over there is amazing. Even bulwarks and tanks. They found 40 tanks buried in a hole somewhere. 
It's just that to me is interesting. I know the rest of you are going, oh, snooze. But that to me is interesting. But all of it is covered in rust. You can't escape it. You can't prevent it, especially back then. Even today, we try to slow it down, and we're not always successful. Our strength always bears this weakness. That rust, it finds its way in there and reveals the frailty of our ironwork, the pinnacle of our strength and our military technology. Steel was it. Iron refinements had advanced tremendously by Jesus' day. Weaponry and tools were, were benefiting from foundry improvements. But none of it was invincible. So you have the moth eating those materials that we use to show our status. You have rust eating those materials that we use to build strength. And number three, we see by stealth, thieves are revealing the frailty of the materials that we use to create security. All right? Now, I'd love to ask how many of you have a safe in your home, but that's kind of should be public knowledge. All right? I won't ask you what's in that safe either. That's the nature of a safe, that it's private. So that thieves don't get a thought of it about coming in and taking it. We have to go to great measures here. And I looked at the house one time. And it was a very nice house. It was a pretty house. It had a lot of things that we wanted. But there was one problem with it. It had a massive safe, an antique safe in the basement. Oh, man. I do not want to have to deal with this thing. It's incredible. But that was the link to which you had to go to prevent, protect your investment from thieves, from burglars. And these burglars, they, I mean, they, you know, this, these items, they can't be eaten by the moth. They're not eaten by rust. But they can still be consumed. They can still be carried away by the thief. Now, the reason why it says dig through there, you have to remember, uh, in Jesus' day, many homes were made with mud bricks. And so to those people, it wasn't as simple as, uh, you know, using a sawzall to get through your wall, maybe. It was, they, they would literally have to dig through the dirt and the soil uh, in your home to try to get inside and breach your security and to do so while you were not there, so that they could try and get in. But here's Jesus' point. He summarized this way in verse 21 there. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The human heart is most naturally governed by what it treasures most. It is most naturally governed by what it treasures most. Now, don't misunderstand Jesus isn't condemning clothes. Praise the Lord. Alright? He's not condemning metal instruments. He's not condemning money. An issue here is the perishable nature of these valuable materials and where we store this treasure. That's the problem. Fine furnishings and clothing do not make a stable wealth. Metal works do not make a stable wealth. Precious metals and substances do not make a, a stable wealth. Those are not treasures, though many people give their lives to their pursuit. Jesus is saying it's a tragedy. An issue is a life lived in allegiance to money 
It is a life lived in love with the mother. What he's talking about here is a question of what we want most of all. Real love. Lasting love. It's not something you can store up on her. It is something that must be gotten and stored inside of the kingdom. It is the fruit. It is the benefit. It is the profit of living by the principles that please God. That's the kind of wealth. It's out of reach of moths. It's out of reach of rust. Out of reach of thieves. And notice that there's a second principle. We see it in our text, verses 22 and 23. The light of the body is the eye, and therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? And this is one of those texts that makes people kind of wrestle with the idea. Uh, you know, is there a coherent theme addressing all these things, joining them together? And the question, the answer is yes, yes it is. The loyalty of the kingdom citizens mean that they recognize the effect of a little evil on their fidelity. How does a person become disloyal to the Lord? Well, he does so by degrees. I've said it a million times, I'll say it a million times more. Satan's objective isn't to somehow get me to run out and commit full-scale adultery. If he could simply get me to change my opinion of my wife, to change my affection towards my wife, he knows my flesh will do the rest. The same is for you. What he wants to do is he wants us to get, he wants to change our opinion of the Lord. He wants us to change those things upon which we stood soundly. Like the Christian who came and asked, is it okay if I listen to the Grateful Dead? Why well, wasn't that long ago you had the strong conviction that no, you shouldn't? What changed? Something changed. And a little bit of evil, he's telling us, how does that how does that happen? How does a person come away from the things of the Lord? Now, what you have to realize is, though, there's a number of things you have to understand about the text. It takes a little bit of explaining. All right? It's a tough study, like I said. But here are some observations to help from men that are much smarter than me. And uh, I, you know, I've tried to understand it the best I can. But I thank the Lord for the Holy Spirit that, that, in t that very much instructs us on these matters. Now, notice he's talking about the eye. The eye is a smaller member of the body. But its function is crucial. It is the eye that prevents me from walking off this stage this morning as I'm walking around preaching, as I'm teaching. It is the eye that keeps you in the line of traffic as you are on your way to church this morning. It is the eye, ladies, that makes sure the lipstick is on your lips, right? Not somewhere else, or on your husband, or something else. It is the eye that, that, that guides us, that leads us, that directs us. So in so much as the eye is a little thing, it still exerts great power over the rest of us. It allows us to use our, to find our way. 
Jesus then is using that as an analogy. If an eye be single, the light of the body is the eye. And that word there for light is a lamp. He's calling the eye a lamp as a source of light. It's not a window. We tend to think of eyes as being windows, windows to the soul. He's saying here it is a lamp. And this lamp is, is exerting its influence across the entire body. It's almost though the body is a house or a room. And so when he says it is single, he's saying it is simple. It is not divided. It is good. It is sound. It is useful for its solitary purpose. It is not opaque. It is not covered by soot. It is a clean and functional and beneficial lamp. And he says here that this, this lamp is exerting a big influence upon the rest of the body. So when the eye turns evil, when the eye becomes sick, when the eye is diseased, it reflects that reality into the rest of that body. This is what prompts a person when they finally realize that they have, been, they have become disloyal. Maybe a better way, a word that's more familiar to us, is they have backslid. And they will come in, they come to my office, or they'll come talk to you, and they'll say, I don't know how I got here. Because the eye was evil. And the eye directed the body, and the eye made decisions. He's talking about our allegiance to godly values and the person who is kingdom-minded, the person who is a kingdom citizen, who is committed to his loyalty, to her loyalty to God. That individual is careful to uphold, to stand upon godly principles. How do they get that? Well, they get it through the Word of God. They get it by being a student of the Word of God. This is why we encourage you not to take our word for you are not a strong Christian. If all you ever do is come here and listen to me, you're more vulnerable than you know. And by degrees, small degrees, your eye can be changed to direct the rest of the body into this great darkness. Jesus summarizes <clears throat> To receive the direction of God's light, the heart must be wholly devoted to God's values. Wholly devoted. And, and you could you could argue for a metaphorical, physical application here. What you're putting into the eye gate, everything that goes into the eyes, goes into that great big cloud cabinet in your mind, and it's never lost. It's never gone. It's amazing what I remember, especially by Visual aid. It's amazing what I remember. That's why we do some of the things that we do at the Christian Bible time, right? But listen, friends, what he's talking about is that when we stand on, on biblical principles, when we are careful to hear the Word of God when it is preached, when we are careful to attend the house of God, when we are careful to listen to our Bible teachers, when we are careful about the kind of preaching and teaching that we listen to, whether it be online, uh, or somewhere else, or something from a book at the Bible bookstore. All Satan needs is a little evil in that land. And the 
eventual result will be your disloyalty. Thirdly is this, there's another principle here, verse 24. <clears throat> no man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and man. And this is why I think the two are interrelated. He's talking about laying out up for yourselves treasures on earth, and then he says you cannot serve God and man. Let's answer the question, first of all, what is mammon? It's a common question. Mammon is riches, it is treasure, it is wealth personified, it is trusted treasure, it is materialism as a god. It is the wealth in, way, in the way that Satan uses it to attract, to entice, to seduce. Jesus is talking about the way that we use our finances, the way that we allow them to influence, to influence us, and to direct our lives. This is a hard thing. Because we like money, don't we? We like money. Money offers us opportunities, it offers us resources we could not otherwise have. And Jesus is saying, you cannot do both. You cannot do both. You can only serve the one. God's a stick. Just like any other group. Any other group that wants loyalty, they're going to demand that you love and serve that one cause. And so what he does here is he gives these two contrasts. Either you'll hate or love. Okay, hate to pursue with hatred, to despise, to love less. Or you will love the other. This is a familiar word to us. Agapao. Or from the word from the root agape. To be fond of. To love dearly. To be pleased by or contented with things. When you're trying to serve two masters. Eventually what happens is you get resentful. Either of both. Or you choose one that you prefer to have. Those of you that have maybe multiple bosses that you have to answer to. You know what I'm talking about. Oh. Uh, the other one just told me to do this, and I know he's going to tell me to do the other. It happens. It sounds so inefficient. That's kind of the nature of human organization. Sometimes we're very inefficient. Our inefficiency leads us, sorry, our efficiency leads us to inefficiency. It's, it's a terrifying thing. He says that you see this other contrast, either you will hold to the one and despise the other. To hold is to hold oneself opposite of. So you stand in defense of. The one that pleases you, you care for it, you resist, you stand against those who oppose it. He says, or else you will despise it. So what he's saying here, you're either going to hate God and love mammon, or you're going to love God and hate mammon. And obviously the love of the world is enmity with God. You're either going to hold to God and despise mammon, or you're going to despise God and hold to mammon. And Jesus says here that it is not possible to be devoted to God and serve materialism. You say, well, I'm not a particularly materialistic person. So says the American. We live in a world, we live in a realm of unprecedented love. You know how I can know? We're being strangled with by our amusements, by our entertainment. We are perpetually pursuing our ease. 
we're all about, we spend so much on the latest, greatest gadgets. I know. I'm talking a little bit to the fire here. I don't know that anybody, I, I don't, well, if, if, I, if I do know somebody, then they haven't told me. I don't know anybody with the newest, latest iPhone. But there's probably something else that you have. And it was the thought on your mind when you woke up. It was the thought on your mind when you went to bed. If it's anything other than God, guess what? You have a material God. And it's easy for us to do because we worship those things because we feel like they worship us. They help us worship ourselves. Now again, I'm not against the savings. I'm not against wise living. I'm not against the day Ramsey program. I'm not against preparing for retirement. But if your motive for those things is, when I'm old, I want to serve myself. I want to have the funds to do it. When I'm old, I want to be respected for all the money that I have. When I retire, I want to be able to do as I please. That, those are illegitimate motives, and that is materialism. Now, if your motive is to provide for your children some kind of inheritance, if it's not to be a burden on your family or not to be a burden on your church, those are legitimate reasons. Those are very different motives. We've talked about motives before, especially in chapter 5. But you and I, we have to recognize that earthly treasure was never supposed to be the goal of God's people. We do not measure our spirituality by our wealth. Rather, you say, well, what is gold for? What are diamonds for? Why do we have them here? They're a symbol. They're an analogy of a more eternal treasure that can only be found in God's presence. <clears throat> We're living in absolute bondage to our comforts, our conveniences, our entertainment. Friends, we are not called to so meager a reward as those things that are consumed by moths, by rust, by thieves. We're called to something infinitely more precious. Well, that begs another application. It begs another point. Like I said, Jesus is actually going to apply this next week. And what I love about the fact is that it is a common passage that we usually go to when we're wrestling with anxiety. A lot of our anxiety comes from the power, the need, the desire to have. To have things we cannot guarantee ourselves. And a lot of it, and we'll talk about it a little bit more next week, but listen, your deepest loves and desires reveal your truest treasures. Question. What is it you want most of all? What does Colossians 3 1 say? Set your affections where? Things above. Things above. Things from the presence of God. Things from His, from His place, from where He lives. And 1 Timothy 6 admonishes us not to love money. We do not depend on money, we depend on God. What is it that makes you daydream? What is it that makes you spend countless hours in gleeful planning? What is the first thing on your mind in the morning? What is the last thing on your mind at night? 
Remember, all along during this study, we have seen Jesus is calling people to a devotion to God that demands service to God and God alone. Do you want God and His kingdom so badly? Or are you longing for something else that can consume it? How about at home? You see your home as a place of ministry, as an opportunity to worship and love the Lord with every fiber of that environment. How about at work? Do you see your work as a ministry? Is it a dreadful? Is it a chore? Is it a place you pray for the Lord to release you from? How about at church? When you come to church, is your devotion to God evident? How might it be evident? Well, it might be evident in an excitement and enthusiasm to be under the, to be in the study when it's going on. It's good for us to see each other, to commune, and to fellowship with one another. But is it a problem for you when we linger so long in the lobby of Pastor Danny's teaching? Where Pastor Black is preaching? Where the people of God are singing? Those are all facets of worship that we have all agreed upon that are necessary. Fit for our use. Is that singular devotion and worship to God evident in your gift? In your listening. In your listening. In your singing. We heard last week on the blessedness of God. This week, tonight, we're going to talk about the eternality of God. We looked at the blessedness of God. And we talked about how the blessedness of God ought to inspire us to really sing our hearts. Now this church sings good. I'm glad it. But as you sing, I hope you're singing with your whole heart. Thirdly, devotion to God requires loyalty to his values. Loyalty to his values. Unsaved friend, you are marching towards a day when all of your precious things will be taken. Because they were, after all, temporary treasures. This earth will pass away and all the things that are in it. You may leave some of these treasures behind when you die. But you will leave all of the most important things all over again when you die without the comforts of eternity in Christ. And please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying God will take it away from you. But when you live your life with fragile materials, you can only expect that your precious things will pass from you. Without Christ, the moth, the rust, and the thieves, they win. They win, but there is good news. I do not leave you hopeless, because the response of God to your sin is to provide by the richness of His grace. By giving the one thing that was precious to him, his son, who died in your stead so that you would know what it is to truly be rich. You can build the perfect home and it'll burn down. You can devise the perfect job and then the market tank. 
You can possess all manner of gadgets and gizmos. They all break, don't they? But when you have Christ Jesus, He can't be taken away. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. But friend, if you're still trusting in your own personal righteousness, if you're trusting in your own good works to get you to glory, you're lost. You stand a debtor before a holy judge. I'll tell you what, though. It's simple. We confess with our mouth, Lord Jesus Christ, I believe in our hearts that God hath raised him from the dead. We can have assurance of this salvation. The Bible says that these things are written that we may know. And in knowing that we might believe them. God does not leave us poor. Amen? Amen. Even if we're rich in the things of this world, we're poor without Jesus Christ. But in Him, God provides His riches. Would you stand with me for a word of prayer? Father God, we thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you for the soundness of it. We thank you for the joy and the glory of the fact that Jesus is again calling us to loyalty to God. He is challenging us. He is charging our hearts to understand what, Jesus, what, what, what we were supposed to know through the Old Testament Scripture. And a loving God has provided good news that we who are impoverished spiritually have great hope. Father, I pray for that person that is yet without Christ, without Christ that is still burdened by their sin. Father, help them to see that today is the day of salvation. Today is a day of great hope. For that Christian that has encumbered himself or herself by the cares of and the concerns of this world help them to see and understand again, afresh, anew, that nothing else but God matters. He is our chief concern. And you are our supreme love. Help us to Father, we thank you for your word this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Would you turn in your hymn books to my last page? 77. 77, please. Let's have a moment of invitation. It's a, a time, an opportunity for you to come get your questions answered. And that, I mean, if you don't want to you don't have to. But friend, do not leave here the same as when you can. Grab somebody next to you and say, what do I need to do to be saved? What do I need to do to be saved? Christian, it might mean that you are fresh. Pray and give your heart a reaffirm your love for the Lord God. You've been busy about things, about stuff, maybe even about relationships. But friend, none of that matters if you lose the treasure of loving God and God. Come, you have a need. I'll pray with you. I encourage you. Don't leave here challenged and charged. But then you go out the same. On that first verse.
11 tonight, we're going to study the eternality of God. Does it matter that God is endless? How would it matter that God is endless? Have you thought about it? Most of us have not. <laughs> Myself, I'm too forced to think about it for this. I, I will confess, I have not thought about it deeply we're going to talk about it this evening and praise the Lord for the opportunity to at least understand a little bit about him. Like I said last week, it's hard because you're talking about God. How can we possibly understand who he is? From apart from his word, we would not be able to. So, deacons, if any of you are available, please see me as rapidly as you can.